1209. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. So glad to have you with us. Last night, as I was driving home, the story broke. The report issued by the Department of Justice investigating illegal activity um, engaged in by one or more former members of the Government Accountability Board. They, they, They can't issue charges because they can't prove beyond a reasonable doubt who did it. But it is a very dark day in Wisconsin history. More importantly, it... It validates something that myself and a handful of other primarily talk show hosts have been trying to say, um, running into a general media stonewall, and that is that there was something rotten at the core of these John Doe investigations. And because you had some, I believe, corrupt investigators, attorneys, whatever, we're never going to know exactly apparently who it was or how many were involved in this, who decided to advance political agendas, and the phrase that's being used is weaponize the government in an effort to try to go after or go after Republicans and conservatives. Um, you, you just saw one of the most gross abuses of authority and power that I think you can imagine. What is equally frustrating to me, and I tweeted about this last night, is this this happened under the noses of the media watchdogs. What happened is you had members of the mainstream media, the newspapers around the state, who were engaged in what I believe was Walker derangement syndrome. And because they so badly wanted to see Scott Walker being taken down, they looked the other way. They did not focus on the abuses that were going on right under their noses, and now that is all being exposed. All right, um, if you follow me on Twitter, and it's Jeff Wagner 620, I send out links to the various reports and um, getting a lot of feedback from that. What I want to do, and this is a little bit of a deviation from the what we typically do, we start off today's show like we start off every show with three big things. A big story number one is something that we have been talking about for years now. It is the now... The culmination of the John Doe investigation, where we go from here as far as discipline with some of the investigators or whether there's going to be lawsuits or whether people are going to be going to jail remains to be seen. But this investigation, it's a 91, 92-page report into leaks of confidential information, information obtained under seal. Um, It was made public yesterday. This is the investigation. And I'm going to take a couple minutes in a segment or two of the program and go through not all 92 pages. You can read it. It's available online. But this is sort of the wrap-up to what I have been saying for years has been a witch hunt. And what we now know was, in fact, a witch hunt that occurred by government Officials. All right, so I'm going to quote a little bit from the Department of Justice report, so bear with me. Here's the background, and here's how it starts off. This is what they write. On September 12, 2016, the Guardian newspaper published an article online by Ed Pilkington entitled, Because Scott Walker Asked. In writing the article, Pilkington claimed that he relied upon leaked court documents from John Doe investigation in Wisconsin. The article further explained as follows. The Guardian has obtained 1,500 pages of leaked 
documents assembled by Wisconsin prosecutors in the course of their John Doe investigation into alleged campaign finance violations in Wisconsin. They include legal filings held under seal and email exchanges between Scott Walker, his team of advisors, and right-wing lobby groups who support the governor and his anti-union agenda. As part of this article, The Guardian published a link to these leaked documents posted on a particular website. Following the publication of the article, the Wisconsin legislature authorized and the attorney general directed a criminal investigation to determine the source of the leak. So that's what this is all about. The purpose of this report is to describe the Wisconsin Departments of Justice's investigation, findings, and conclusions related to the leak. Although no criminal charges may be brought at this time for reasons explained in the report, namely they found that a crime was committed, they just can't tell which specific person committed the crime, even though they narrow it down. DOJ recommends that the John Doe judge take the following two actions in response to the investigation. Refer former Government Accountability Board attorney Shane Falk for discipline to the Wisconsin Court System's Office of Lawyer Regulation. And two, initiate contempt proceedings against John Doe Special Prosecutor Francis Smith. Smiths, I worked with him for several years, and former GAB employees who grossly mishandled secret John Doe evidence and related materials and then failed to turn over all evidence as ordered by the Supreme Court. In the following pages, the report will explain how the former Government Accountability Board never fully divested itself of evidence from the John Doe investigations, how former GAB employees and current employees of the Wisconsin Ethics Commission left sensitive evidence unsecured in the former office space and on former computer systems. The report also describes how DOJ investigators, in searching for the leaked documents, discovered what this report calls John Doe 3 a previously unknown and secret investigation into a broad range of Wisconsin Republicans. John Doe 3 reached far beyond John Doe 2's original and unsubstantiated allegations centering on unlawful coordination during Governor Walker's 2010 and 2012 elections. As explained more thoroughly below, this secret investigation, and this should scare every one of you, collected hundreds of thousands of private emails from dozens of Wisconsin Republicans and at least two national conservative leaders. In searching for the leaked documents and the leaker, DOJ investigators found over 500,000 of these John Doe 3 emails in the basement of the former Government Accountability Board in two unsecured boxes labeled Shane Falk. He was one of the lawyers. Moreover, for reasons that perhaps may never fully be explained, Government Accountability Board obtained and then held thousands of private emails from Wisconsin Republicans in several folders on their servers marked Opposition Research. Opposition Research. We continue, and we're going to go into the details and name some names in just a minute. Stick around. 1216, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 1218, Jeff Wagner, 620, WTMJ. Now, the reason we're going to spend some time on this is this is something we have talked about for six years. I've had people tell me, you're crazy. You're in this conspiracy theories. Well, it turns out that not only was it as bad as people like me suggested, it was absolutely worse. We continue quoting from the Department of Justice report. 
In the spring of 2010, then-Milwaukee County Executive Scott Walker requested an investigation into a report of stolen funds. The Milwaukee County DA's office agreed and petitioned a judge to initiate a John Doe proceeding. This investigation, John Doe 1, ultimately resulted in six convictions. Now, let's back up. This entire multiple-year nightmare fishing expedition, witch hunt, and unethical proceeding started when Scott Walker went to the DA's office and a judge and said, hey, we think we've got somebody that's been stealing from one of these veterans things. It's Operation Honor that we used to do over the 4th of July. This is how out of control these special prosecutor investigations can become. Within a few days of Governor Walker's recall election victory on June 5, 2012, however, the Milwaukee DA's office asked Reserve Judge Neil Nettesheim to expand the scope of John Doe 1 from the original theft investigation into an investigation into Governor Walker's campaign finance practices. Nettesheim granted this request on June 25, 2012. At this point in time, we are, as they say, off to the races. After this expansion of John Doe 1 from an investigation requested by Walker into an investigation targeting Walker, is how how through the looking glass is that? Representative from the DA's office consulted with government accountability staff to evaluate alleged campaign finance violations. At the time, the GAB was charged with regulating campaign finance activities, including campaign fundraisers and expenditures in Wisconsin, and therefore possessed the expertise to advise the Milwaukee DA on the legality of the governor's campaign finance activity. On August 8, 2012, ADA... David Robles sent GAB attorney Jonathan Becker a prosecution memo outlining what he erroneously believed to be a campaign finance violations that occurred during John Doe 1. On August 9th, attorney Becker met with representatives from the DA's office, reviewed a slide deck detailing the evidence. Based on this information, attorney Becker erroneously advised the Milwaukee DA that he believed a violation of campaign finance laws had occurred. So in other words, Robles gets it wrong, Becker gets it wrong, we're off to the races, and all this starts to happen. Based at least in part on this evaluation by GAB, the DA's office decided to start a new John Doe proceeding. On August 10, 2012, Judge Nettesheim authorized the DA's office to use and disclose information collected during the expanded John Doe 1, which again started when Scott Walker went and said, somebody's been stealing money from this fund. Now, here's where we go. And this basis was proceeded to form the basis for a new John Doe proceeding, what we will call John Doe number two. And then it goes on and on. Um, on August 12th, 2000, August 22nd, 2013, DAs Chisholm and three others sent a letter to Reserve Judge Kluka asking for the assistance of Attorney Francis Schmitz, who I worked with in the U.S. Attorney's Office years ago. Schmitz was appointed to act as a special prosecutor on August 23rd, 2013. The GAB agreed to provide staff and funds to assist in the investigation. The prosecution team petitioned the court to keep all the information relating to John Doe 2 secret. They argued that secrecy was necessary to render witnesses more free in their disclosures, to prevent defendants from hiding, tampering with, or destroying evidence. That's going to be interesting later on. And to keep testimony that may be mistaken, untrue, or irrelevant from the public. 
Um, the secrecy order was amended at least 26 times. Although secrecy was deemed necessary to the prosecution, the prosecution drafted very broad exemptions from the secrecy orders. From the very start of John Doe 2, access to secret materials was not reasonably limited to a finite group of individuals, as is typical in a John Doe proceeding or grand jury proceeding. So in other words, the witch hunt starts. The report continues. By the summer of 2013, the Milwaukee DA's office already had a massive amount of digital evidence in its possession, including 2011 and 2012 bank records from at least five private organizations that supported Governor Walker. Approximately 1.5 million emails from private citizens and organizations, and call records from over 80 private cell phones. The evidence consists of information collected from expanded John Doe 1 proceeding, as well as John Doe 2 emails. In October of 2013, the team sought additional evidence. They obtained additional wide-ranging subpoenas and search warrants for 29 organizations and individuals seeking millions of documents that have been created over a period of several years. Your tax dollars were supporting this witch hunt. That is my side. The Wisconsin Supreme Court, referring to these additional subpoenas and warrants issued in October of 2013, stated that the breadth of the documents gathered pursuant to subpoenas and seized pursuant to the warrants is amazing, absolutely amazing. Shockingly, despite the sensitivity of the information collected and the fact that the investigation targeted Governor Walker, there was no law kept of what was received by GAB staff, how many copies were made, to whom these records were given, or where the records were stored after the John Doe 2 investigation was closed. So they don't even know what happened to this investig- to the reports. The John Doe 2 core prosecution team included the special prosecutor Francis Schmitz, Milwaukee ADAs David Robles and Bruce Landgraf, Milwaukee DA investigator Robert Stelter, GAB attorney Shane Falk, wait for his name, Kevin Kennedy, Jonathan Becker, and Nathan Judnick, GAB contracted investigators Doug Haig and Dean Nickel, and GAB staff employee Molly Nagapola. Sometime in 2013, the core prosecution team decided to communicate with each other through Gmail accounts rather than use the secure Department of Administration email system. The prosecution team feared that the Department of Administration, as part of Governor Walker's administration, could infiltrate their investigation. It gets worse and worse. And we'll talk about that more in just a minute. 1225, Jeff Wagner. 1227, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. All right, this is big story number one. After six years, we know that what we've been saying for years, this witch hunt that was conducted by the then GAB, it was actually worse than we think. Government abuse of authority going after and targeting Wisconsin conservatives. So ends up what happens. So you've got this out, this investigation that is now expanded. It is incredible. There is litigation. And ultimately, as you know, I'm going to short circuit through about 50 pages of this report. What happens is the courts determine that, first of all, um, what the theory that they are proceeding on, that there has been a crime committed, it's not a crime at all. They are wrong. They are misinterpreting election law. This would be the GAB. This would be the special prosecutor. And secondly, that there's not evidence that suggests that the people did it even if it was a crime. But it is not a crime. The case works its way through the legal system. What happens is right before the Supreme Court of the country is they're going to take up or is scheduled to take up whether or not they're going to hear this appeal. All of a sudden, this big leak appears 
in the Guardian newspaper. And it is a leak which is designed specifically to try to influence the United States Supreme Court. So that's now the background. You have somebody with access to all this information that they have obtained who's decided to now illegally take all these documents, millions of documents that they have access to, and try to pick and choose documents to send to the Supreme Court in an effort to try to influence. All right, here's the conclusions of the report. Let's start with number one. The leak was a crime. The Department of Justice has determined that the leak was, in fact, a crime. Based on the Guardian article itself and the nature of the documents, at least one person intentionally removed the documents from former GAB staff offices and disclosed these documents to the Guardian. Although the DOJ did not learn the precise detail of how the crime was committed or by whom, there is probable cause to believe one or more of the following statutes was violated. So, number one, you've got a crime. B. The motivation of the leaker was to influence the U.S. Supreme Court. The leaked documents published by The Guardian just 11 days before the Supreme Court was to set to consider the prosecution's team's petition. The Guardian article states, the nation's highest judicial panel is expected to announce within days whether or not it will take the case. The report continues, perhaps most importantly, the nature of the leaked documents indicates an intent by someone, likely a lawyer, to respond directly to the Wisconsin Supreme Court's decision in the underlying case. C. The leak did not come from the Wisconsin courts. The leaked documents could not have come from the Wisconsin Supreme Court, Court of Appeals, Circuit Court System, or any employee of the court system. D. The leak did not originate from any district attorney's office or the special prosecutor. Although uh, the special prosecutor and Milwaukee assistant DAs had access to all the court filings, including drafts of all the evidence, the Department of Justice was able to rule out these individuals as suspects. Twelve thirty-five, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. I'm, I'm, th- this is a disgrace, and this comes from my perspective as yes, a former federal prosecutor. It is amazing to me that you could have government bureaucrats who could be allowed to run roughshod over the rights of so many different people. And it's also infuriating that for years the media allowed this to go on. There were a number of us that were saying this is happening, but again, because you had people in government that suffered from the Walker derangement syndrome, we don't like Scott Walker. He pushed Act 10. He, he's a crook. We're going to bring him down. That they came up with cockamamie theories of the law. They refused to acknowledge that they might be wrong. They violated the rights of how many people seizing in an incredible investigation thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of emails and documents that had nothing to do with what they were looking for, all out of a partisan motivation. The report continues. Um, The partisan, okay, first of all, the leak originated from the former Government Accountability Board. The key to this investigation remains that the five unique packets of documents, um, and this is the thing that they used to put all the documents together, were created by an employee at the Government Accountability Board, sent to Shane Falk, one of the lawyers for the GAB, via Gmail, and placed on Falk's hard drive along with all other leaked documents. The partisan atmosphere at GAB contributed to the leak. GAB attorneys represented themselves to the Milwaukee assistant DAs and to the special prosecutors as experts in the field of campaign finance law. The Milwaukee ADAs and the special prosecutor relied on the advice of the GAB attorneys in proceeding with the investigation. After reviewing the emails exchanged between the attorneys at GAB, it is apparent that GAB attorneys had prejudged the guilt of Governor Walker. 
Wisconsin Republicans and related organizations that they were investigating and that this dramatically influenced their ability to give competent legal advice. GAB attorneys did not act in a detached and professional manner. The most reasonable inference is that they were on a wait-for-it mission to bring down the Walker campaign and the governor himself. In November of 2013, Shane Falk wrote to the special prosecutor, this is one of the lawyers for the Government Accountability Board who is giving advice on campaign finance laws to the DAs and the special prosecutors. Here's what he writes. Please keep up the great work and stay strong. Remember, in brief, this was a bastardization of politics, and our state is being run by corporations and billionaires. This isn't democracy, to say the least. But due to how they do this is dark money, the populace never gets to know. The cynic in me says the sheeple would still follow the propaganda, even if they knew. But at least it would all be out there, so the influences on our politicians are clearly known. This is supposed to be one of the people that is trying to give impartial advice on the law to the prosecutors. The report continues, because the attorneys for the GAB, none of whom were experienced criminal prosecutors, prejudged the evidence and what it meant, they had difficulty accepting that their interpretation of the law was wrong. After receiving the motions from attorneys for the targets and actually reading the applicable case law and statutes, the Milwaukee ADAs and the special prosecutor began to doubt the validity of their case. The attorneys for GAB were incredulous that the prosecutors were doubting their advice. When ADA Robles questioned Falk on a point of campaign finance law, Falk told Robles, I am not engaging in this anymore. We are the experts on campaign finance laws. It is clear your office has some difficulties understanding and applying it correctly. When discussing the motion to quash filed by attorneys for the targets, Falk stated, these arguments are baloney. The attorneys don't know what their clients did. They don't know the full facts. After reviewing a motion from an attorney from the Friends of Scott Walker, Falk commented, wow, he really doesn't understand campaign finance law. On January 10th, 2014, when Judge Peterson quashed the John Doe subpoenas and warrants, GAB attorneys blamed the court rather than their own misinterpretation of the law. Falk stated, I knew he, Judge Peterson, was bad news from the start, but even I didn't anticipate this. On January 10th, 2014, Falk sent an email to the core prosecution team regarding the court's order stating, this is a bad joke, right? Are you serious? This is pathetic. It's almost funny. See, this is what happens when you have an investigation that goes off on a rail. You have a politically motivated guy that runs it who refuses to accept ruling after ruling after ruling and continues to spend taxpayer money blasting ahead. In June 2014, after discussing the case with attorneys for the targets, it is apparent that the special prosecutor had doubts about the continued viability of the investigation. Upon the advice of his attorney, Francis Smith released a statement indicating that Scott Walker was not the target of the investigation. This brought apoplectic rebukes from GAB attorneys. Shane Falk accused the special prosecutor of lying to the press and providing fodder for talking heads. Jonathan Becker, the attorney supervising Judnick and Shane Falk, told the special prosecutor, I am thoroughly disgusted by your proposed press statement. He told Schmitz that he was rewriting history and that Schmitz should man up. He stated, this just sickens me. Well, there's stuff about this that we should be sick about, but it's not that statement. Kevin Kennedy, he's the guy that runs this whole thing, replied to this email directing Becker to review Schmitz's invoice. 
<laughs> the next day, Kevin Kennedy sent the special prosecutor a lengthy email disputing portions of his bill. Here's what the GAB did. Once the special prosecutor began to have doubts about this witch hunt that he was engaged in and said, okay, I'm, I'm going to put this out, they started looking at trying to figure out ways to cut his bill. This is Kevin Kennedy. These words and actions of individuals supposedly by part of a nonpartisan government body demonstrated to DOJ that some or all of these individuals did not maintain the kind of objectivity that is expected of officials legitimately investigating potential civil campaign law violations. No kidding. And it goes on to talk about how they just didn't properly maintain evidence. Um, you know, they didn't keep it um, away from people and things like that. Um, then... They point out that after the leak of documents to The Guardian, no action was taken by any member of the Ethics Commission or the Election Commission to notify law enforcement. This is particularly egregious because at the time of the leak, only former members of GAB would have known that the leaked documents came from their office. Equally as troubling was the fact that no former member of GAB seemed remotely concerned or anxious about the leak. Let me translate that. They were out to get Walker. They were frustrated that their theories were not working out. They were frustrating that they were losing. So what they tried to do was screw up the system. They tried to use information that they had gotten through this out-of-control John Doe proceeding to try to influence the court, and they didn't care if anybody knew about it. So in any event, it concludes, they say, look, there was a crime that was committed, We can narrow it down to a couple people, but we can't tell which one of those individuals was the one that specifically did it. Um, They have, however, indicated that they're going to provide evidence to the court. They want to refer attorney Shane Falk to the Office of Lawyer Regulations for knowing and repeated violation of Judge Peterson's January 27, 2014 order. And they want to initiate contempt proceedings against several individuals. This is a dark day in Wisconsin history simply because it demonstrates clearly what happens when you have politically motivated government employees armed with subpoenas who can essentially spend hundreds of thousands, millions, who knows how much this ultimately cost, taxpayer dollars trying to advance a particular political agenda. That's what happened The rules get thrown out. There's no supervision, essentially. They proceed and proceed and proceed. And you've heard the other stories about how they obtained, they started subpoenaing all these things. They obtained emails. They had folders. I mean, Leah Vukmir was on with Steve Scafidi earlier. Apparently, they had a number of her emails, including private correspondence about medical conditions with her daughter. This was your government at work. It was happening for a lengthy period of time. It shows how special prosecutors get out of control, and it shows how, uh, again, when the media decides we don't like Scott Walker, we're not going to focus on the abuses because we think the end will justify the means. It shows how whacked out things can get. So what happens now? All right, obviously, I think, at least in my opinion, several of the people involved in this should never be entitled to practice law again. There will be contempt proceedings, and the judge is going to have to determine, you know, what an appropriate penalty for that is. If I were... A number of the people whose emails were seized, stuck in folders that weren't properly maintained, marked as opposition research, I would be talking to my own attorneys, determining what sort of rights do I have? Can I sue some of these people involved? Typically, when you are 
a prosecutor. You enjoy a broad range of, of immunity as long as you are doing stuff in your official capacity. I think this report, if the facts are true, demonstrates that there were at least a handful of people that were way beyond what would be within the scope of immunity, but I'm not a lawyer who specializes in that kind of stuff, and I'll, I'll leave it to some of the victims of this witch hunt to determine you know, whether or not they want to seek legal redress. But in general, just an appalling, an appalling several-year period of time, and for many of us who were trying to say, I, I told you so, I told you this was going on, well, I told you so. All right, we're going to open up the phone lines. This is big story number one. If you've got a comment, and I, I wanted to go through the report because I don't know that we're going to be talking about this again unless there's disciplinary action taken against people. But this is the culmination of a six-year witch hunt. And for those of us, what I was saying all along is, you know, if you're going to start a witch hunt, you you got to find a witch. Well, now we know who the witches were it was some of the witch hunters. 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. If you have thoughts or comments, we'll do it for a segment. It's 1246. This is Jeff Wagner. 1249, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. A very sad day in Wisconsin history. It, it is now very apparent that you had a, a government accountability board that decided to – the phrase that's used in the report is weaponize. I mean, they, they decided to – they decided – they didn't like Scott Walker. They decided that a crime had been committed. They came up with this cockamamie theory that they then pursued and, and put put people, including some people I know, through hell for years while they were advancing this particular defunct theory. And along the way, as this developed, not only pursuing this cockamamie theory that had no legal validity, not only trying to destroy people's lives, um, but also not following the rules that they were supposed to follow, not treating evidence like it was supposed to be taken. And then in the case of at least one individual, and they're not able to identify specifically who, you can read the report, and I think it's pretty clear who they think did this, but you know, you, you don't know. They don't have the evidence to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. Once this was all falling apart, somebody with access to all this information decided, I'm going to ignore court orders, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to leak this information to a newspaper in Great Britain in an effort to try to influence things. Um, as far as turning over documents, well, that wasn't done either. As far as returning stuff, that wasn't done. This is just a complete and total shamble from beginning to end. And I go back, the whole thing started. The whole thing started when Governor Walker himself says, hey, I think somebody's been stealing from this um, this Operation Honor, this thing that we do for veterans over the 4th of July in Milwaukee County. And here we are six, seven years later. It is morphed into this gross witch hunt that occurred. And again, part of the outrage, too, is the supposed media watchdogs, because they wanted to see Governor Walker taken down, they decided to kind of look the other way. There wasn't focus on what the investigators were doing. Dick in Dousman. Dick, you're on WTMJ. Uh, hi, Jeff. Hi, Dick. Uh, I have a question for you. Sure. Uh, with respect to this missing hard drive. Uh, right, and the hard drive was the, that, that's where the documents that the Guardian got presumably came from. That's what everybody thinks, yeah. Okay. Right. Were, were the people who had access to that hard drive, particularly Schmitz and Falk and the other gang, were they put under oath in Schimmel's investigation as to what happened to that hard drive? 
No, I don't believe any. Thanks for calling. I don't believe anybody was put under oath. I could be wrong, but of course that wouldn't be necessary because if you made a, a false statement, that would still be a crime. And I do want to be clear. Francis Schmitz, who again I, I worked with for years, does, doesn't come across well in this report. But they do not believe that he is the guy that leaked the stuff. They, they believe the leak came from somebody within the Government Accountability Board who had access to this. No, to answer your question, I don't believe anybody was put under oath. A couple were talked to about it. They, they wanted to be with their lawyers. And then, in essence, it, it's kind of like I don't recall those sort of things. Um, and, and again, you, you don't, without finding the hard drive itself, which my guess is probably at the bottom of a river somewhere right now, you, you're never going to know for sure who it was that, that ended up doing this. And this, you know, it, it's just, it, it's one of these things that just should be infuriating. And again, I, I go back to this because for years and years, we were told, oh, you're just being the mouthpieces for conservatives and for Republicans. And this is the Government Accountability Board, and they're these experts. And, and those of us who can kind of read the law, which is just the whole theory from the beginning was screwed up. Back in the day, you know, when I was prosecuting cases, there's enough real crime that was out there that you didn't have to go around trying to manufacture theories to try to new theories of law to try to bring people down. Okay, well, that, that's, that's what happened here. But what was even worse is once the court said, all right, no, this is not a crime. Your legal theory is wrong. This might be what you want the law to say, but it's not what the law says. You had people on the taxpayer's dime who refused to accept that. And then, oh, this judge doesn't know what he's talking about. That judge doesn't know what he's talking about. And, and then when some other people who recognized that their reputations and careers were kind of on the line and they had gotten taken down this primrose path, when they started to say, hey, look, we, we maybe have to back off, they were told that they were fools. They had their billings you know, audited to determine you know, whether or not, you know, we're here, we're going to look at how much money we're paying for you. If anybody thought that this government accountability board operated in an impartial fashion, this report blows the cover off of that. And like I say, it's just it is unfortunate i hope some of the victims of these actions by some of these people who i believe proceeded in at best an unethical fashion at worst an illegal fashion i hope some of them talk to lawyers to determine whether or not they have causes of action again they'll their own lawyers are going to have to decide that but this you want to talk about a gross abuse of power. This is what has been going on for years and years. And I guess it's just important that the legislature, you know, the legislature makes sure that it, it never, ever happens again. Because you had some very, very, at best, ill-informed and at worst, corrupt, in my opinion, government officials who decided that they were going to try to advance personal political agendas. Um at the expense of what they should have been doing, they ruined lives, or they tried to ruin lives. They tried to ruin careers, and I think it would be appalling if they were able to simply walk away from that. It is 1256. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Okay, I almost never spend that much time on a topic, but this has been going on for six years, and I guess some of us who've been screaming about this witch hunt feel a degree of validation today, and it doesn't get the reputations of the people who are victims back, but at least perhaps it is a start. All right, coming up in just a couple minutes, got a special guest. We're going to be talking about Kids to Kids Christmas, and then big things number two and three, uh, the Mideast. 
Once again, the crazies are going even more crazy. And this California story, these wildfires that are threatening Southern California, we're going to be talking about that. If if you haven't seen some of the video, it is incredible. Um, we've pulled some out. If you want to see it, because we'll be talking about in just a little bit about what how this is affecting people's lives. But if you want to see some of the video, and we've got some compelling video out there, simply text the word FIRE, F-I-R-E, to our Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line, 414-799-1620, 414-799-1620. Text the word FIRE. We'll send you a link to some video. We're going to be talking about that in the next few minutes. It is 1259. This is Jeff Wagner. It's 108. This is Jeff Wagner. Glad to have you with us. All right. We are in the, the middle of the 12th annual Kids to Kids Christmas campaign. Um, kind of kicked off a couple of weeks ago. Of course, we, we had our big WTMJ, the, the, the annual Christmas show. A portion of the proceeds from that go to Kids to Kids Christmas. Last week, we were at VMP collecting toys, collected several thousand toys. Tomorrow, my show, Wisconsin's Afternoon News and uh, Sports Central are going to be on the road. We're going to be at Albrecht Century in Delafield. That's the, you can see it from the freeway. We've been there for a number of years for various events, all for the purpose of collecting toys. And then, then the big wrap-up event, and if you haven't been there, well, you really need to go. The big wrap-up event is at Capco in Grafton a week from Saturday, and, I mean, they just really do it upright. And right now we are joined by the president of Capco, Jim Kazmarek. Jim, good afternoon. Good afternoon to you. Twelve years. Time sure flies, huh? It sure does. Uh, as we reflect back uh, at the beginning of this, uh, and celebrate our 12th year it was a pretty humble beginning and uh, you know trying to collect a, a thousand toys I think the first year and, and this year well on our way over 20,000 so yes uh, time goes by quick. You know Jim what I think is so interesting about the whole Kids to Kids Christmas campaign is it's not just about collecting toys now ultimately that's the, the, the end goal but it's also about trying to encourage people to, to talk to their kids and teach their kids the spirit of giving, which is why, you know, we say, hey, go to the toy store, go to the store with your child and let them pick out a kid that's going to go to some, a, a toy that's going to go to a child that's less fortunate to them. Yes, absolutely. Obviously, it's a, it's a, just a great teachable moment for, uh, for adults to kind of engage with their, with their children or grandkids. And, 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 um, and what we really, um, are really working hard to get done is is just getting so many kids involved in this program you know uh, that's the start talking to your kids taking them to buy a toy but uh we're working really hard to talk to those kids uh have them uh, bring the toys themselves be a part of it and teach them the the lesson of giving so really it has two sides of it right the 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 receivers that are thousands of people in all of southeastern Wisconsin that are going to receive these toys, but on the other side of it, thousands of children that uh, are learning a lesson that um, maybe it's uh, good to think about others during the Christmas season as well. Let's talk a little bit about the wrap-up event that you have coming up a week from uh, Saturday at your shop at Capco. Whenever I am up there, and I'm going to be there this year, and matter of fact, a lot of friends of mine are bringing their grandkids and stuff. It's that is it is just an absolutely amazing thing to see all the toys that are collected and the the incredible party that you throw up there. Well, yes, uh, and we encourage everybody to come. It's open to the public. It's free, obviously. You know, people can come bring a toy, be a part of it. If you've been a part 
of the Kids to Kids brought a toy. What a great place to come back to now and see it all kind of, you know, culminate. Um, this is uh, 9 a.m. we start till 2 p.m. Uh, on December 16th. And, yeah, it's a, it's a big event. There will be live reindeer and, and hay rides and bonfires and carolers and, you know, the toys. I mean, the the... The, I don't know how many people have had an opportunity to see, you know, 20,000 toys in one spot, but it kind of, it really does blow your mind. And so many kids think, oh my gosh, is this the North Pole? <laughs> I mean, there are toys everywhere, and it's a, and it's just a celebration of everybody coming together and, and making a difference. Have you been surprised at how this this program has in fact grown from what you were talking about at humble beginnings earlier on? Well, yes, to some degree, but you know, um, I think. Wisconsin in particular and, and our area is a really generous area, and I think uh, connecting people uh, to, to charitable opportunities and giving is, is really what, what we need to work on. And, and when, when we provide those things, I'm not really surprised at how many people get involved. I mean, they, they, uh, they see this, they, they see the impact that it's making and the teachable moments, and um, yeah, I mean, it's uh, certainly humbling, but it's, it's great to and every year it continues to grow. Every single year we get people who have heard about it, say they haven't come, then they come, and then they've now made it a, a tradition where they're always coming. There's tons of opportunities here on this Saturday to take pictures with your family, for reindeers, for Christmas cards. and It's just a, it's just a magnificent uh, time. And encourage everyone to come. I just walk through your place, and I'm just always struck by all the toys. <laughs> you know, I've just never seen that many toys in one place, and it kind of it kind of takes you back to your childhood. You go, oh, I remember that game, or, or or that looks really cool. Hey, can I buy that? And they keep saying, Jeff, it's not a toy store. You know, it's it's just there to display. It's it, it's it, but it does even as an adult, it it makes you kind of feel young again seeing all that stuff. Absolutely, and the kids, you know, from the local schools and the Boy Scouts and the Girl Scouts, they come and they've been here already throughout the week. They take over some of our office areas and they'll put one area will be all the the Barbie dolls and another room will be all the games and some bikes in a different room. It's it's pretty cool to see and and yeah, from from the old Mr. Potato Head days and and the board games Candyland that we all played when we were younger to some of the new things here. There's pretty much everything there is. So, uh Jim, okay, let's review the bidding. Now, tomorrow we're going to be doing a collection event. We're going to be broadcasting live from the Century Store in Delafield, Albrecht Century, right off the freeway for six-plus hours. We encourage people to stop by and drop off toys. There are a number of different collection spots, and you know they're available on, you know, on the web. You can find those out. And then um, the big event, a week, the culminating event, a week from Saturday at your place in Grafton, easy to find right off the freeway from 9 until 2. And we encourage everybody to come on out. And um, even 9 to 2, there's still an opportunity a week from Saturday to bring toys, right? Absolutely. There's the, tons of people bring toys that day. And, and as you mentioned, yes, we're right on off of, in Grafton off Highway 60. You know, it's, it's literally minutes from 43 and Highway 60, so easy to get to. And, and yeah, you see it's just so heartwarming to watch the young little kids come and, and drag in these little bags of toys and, and hand them off. And um, so there's plenty of time, and, and it's just a magnificent event for sure. Jim Kazmarek of CAPCO. Um, 
Thanks for. I, I mean, I remember when this first started, and I have to tell you, and you and Jonathan Green kind of came out with, with the idea, and I remember when the rest of us here at TMJ, when we were told about what it was, and I thought, oh, that's kind of cute, and it's nice, and I wasn't sure that it was going to have legs, and I wasn't sure how many toys it was going to generate. Um, Twelve years later, you know, goal of over 20,000 toys. They had 3,500 brought to just the event at VMP Manor Park the other day, so um, this has really grown, and it's something that you should be very, very proud of, and I know you don't do it for you know personal accolades but on behalf of a lot of us who've seen what a difference this has made for kids at christmas let me say thank you jim Yo, thanks i appreciate that and it really is a you know wtmj coming together the salvation army and all these different businesses piggly wiggly and culvers and all the different groups that are coming together to get this done so it's really a a big effort from lots of folks and you know it's been over 160,000 toys best uh, we can uh, count back that we've collected so uh it has made a big impact in southeastern wisconsin and we thank every listener and every kid that comes forward and gets involved it's it it is magnificent jim kesmerick we'll see you a week from saturday thank you look forward to seeing all of you absolutely it's jim kesmerick who's the president of capco who's uh been of course one of the driving forces behind this hope to see a number of you tomorrow again noon to well noon to like six or six thirty um, a number of us will be out at the Albrecht Century. Again, it runs parallel to the freeway in Delafield. Um, we will be collecting toys, and uh, there's opportunities. There's the website out there that will tell you. You can go to WTMJ.com, click, click on the Kids to Kids Christmas link. You can see other places you can drop off toys. And I really do hope a lot of people come out. This event next Saturday. Um, interestingly, my wife has been taking you know, her kids and her grandkids there for a number of years. And she says, this is going to be fun. You know, you're going to be doing that. And I think I'm doing some call-ins or something from there. Um, it's just it, it's just become a tradition for a lot of people. So that is a week from Saturday. We'll talk more about that as it gets closer. It's 117. Big story number two is coming up. If you want to see some of this dramatic footage, you can, if you email me, text me, that is, text me the word FIRE, 414-799-1620. If you haven't seen some of this dramatic footage about what's going on in California, I'll send you a link to it. We're going to talk about that next. It's 118. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. It's 121, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. The Bucks' homestand continues tomorrow evening as Dirk Nowitzki and the Dallas Mavericks head to the Bradley Center. Ted Davis and Dennis Krause will begin our game night coverage with Buck Shots 640 tomorrow here on WTMJ. That's a revenge game of sorts. Uh, the Dallas Mavericks are a hot mess this year, and uh, they're owned by Mark Cuban. Couldn't happen to a nicer guy. They're a hot mess, but they just stomped the Bucks when the Bucks played in Dallas. Um, so this is this is kind of a revenge game. All right, big story number two. We're a little bit late getting this because we spent a lot of time in the first hour on this culmination of the John Doe investigation, and again, it's just it just continues to be mind blowing to me that you could have prosecutors, investigators, government employees who were as out of control as. Clearly, some members of the Government Accountability Board were, and now the question is going to become what's going to happen to them. All right, big story number two, um, Southern California wildfires. We, we've been the, – the footage of this is incredibly dramatic. Let me, let me back up for a second. About a month ago, 
a little over a month ago, my brother and I, my niece, I've told you this before, my niece is a freshman at San Diego State. So um, late October, my brother and I were going to go out and visit her, and it just so happened that Jimmy Buffett was playing in San Diego that Saturday night, so we took Sydney there. So I, I went to San Diego, and I hadn't been to San Diego for probably going on 20 years. Um, and and it, it, it's, of course, beautiful. The weather, even though the weather wasn't great when we were out there, you know, it, it's a wonderful city. You could see why somebody would fall in love with it. But one of the things that really struck me when I was out there is it's 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 centered in there, there's hills all around i mean so you're the the city is you know you're you're driving through hills and things like that they've got all these signs up that say you know this road washes out in heavy rains and things like that because the rain washes off the hills and into the the roadways and stuff the other thing that struck me is like in the words of the song it doesn't rain in southern california um there were it's it's incredibly dry out there like it it's not lush or green. You don't have the lushness that you have in Florida. You have all these hills, and I was struck by how brown they, they all were. They're, they're all dried out because there's not that much rain as a general rule. And so I can see what happens is you have some fire that starts. Um, the, the ground is a tinderbox, essentially. And then you couple that with the, the Santa Ana winds, which you know, are, are the winds that can whip up to 50, 60, 75 miles an hour. So you get the fire. You get it's the perfect storm when it comes to, you know, fires. Fire breaks out. And then what happens is there's nothing to stop it. The the It's got the fuel it needs because you've got the, the tinderbox type of stuff. You've got the winds that come along. And, and that's what's happening now in California. Now, this isn't San Diego. It's a little bit north in Los Angeles. But, you know, you have a situation where... Um, with winds topping 50 miles an hour, um, more than 200,000 people have already been forced from their homes. Nearly 200 homes and buildings have been destroyed since the fires first broke out about three days ago. And they're saying, look, um, we're we're in the beginning of what we call a protracted, protracted wind event. Um, there's no ability to fight fire in these kinds of winds. In other words, there's nothing, there's really nothing that we can do to stop this. So this, it's going to burn, baby, burn. And you've got a number of really expensive homes. For example, the Bel Air neighborhood of Los Angeles is being threatened. The Getty Museum is being threatened. 200,000 people already out of their homes. And this is just something that you, 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 you live with because in situations like this, there's not a lot that you can do. All right. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I was having a conversation about this last night with a couple people, night before last actually, with, with a couple people, and you know, we were talking about the different risks that you have in different places that you can live. And a couple of my friends, looking at these fires, simply said, you know, I understand that the weather can be great, but given that this is a semi-regular occurrence, you know, you, you've got fires, you've got mudslides out in that area. They said, you know, there, there is no way that I would consider as beautiful as it is and as great as the weather might be, there's no way that I would consider living in Southern California because of this potential. And I said, huh, 
interesting kind of theory, but you know the weather's great. Well, yeah, the weather's great, but you know if you're worried about forest fires on a regular basis, this uh, or mudslides on those occasions when you do get the rainy season, it, it makes you wonder: is it worth putting up with this all? Four one four seven nine nine one six two zero. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. California to me looks like a beautiful place to visit. Love the couple days in San Diego, but you know what? As far as a place to live, in part because of the threat of forest fires and things like that, I'm you know give me the Midwest four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. Is this just are there problems everywhere or are are the potential the ongoing potential for forest fires would that affect your choice of living four one four seven nine nine one six twenty we discuss next if you're on the line please hold on it's one twenty seven this is Jeff Wagner WTMJ. 128, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ, Dwayne in Watertown. Dwayne, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hey, Jeff. Thanks so much for all you do. Thank you. So I grew up in the South San Francisco Bay Area. And uh, growing up in California, we always felt sorry for the people who lived elsewhere. (laughs) We really did. Right. Those of us who grew up in flyover country, we just didn't get it, huh? No, we had a we had a girl come to our school in high school, and we all met her. And she said she grew up in Michigan, and we all felt sad for her. <laughs> and I remember telling her, "Oh, we're so glad you moved to California, where all the cool people are." The, the, okay, um, now of course Californians Californians hear of Midwest tornadoes, yeah, or blizzards, and snow and ice storms. Yeah. And they just can't imagine anybody that would live out there in those conditions. So the, the, the threat of, of forest fires or earthquakes or things like that, that's just, that that's nothing, huh? What is California, like three times the size of Wisconsin? Oh, at least probably. boatload of places to live in California that that don't deal with anything like that at all. Yeah. Now, thanks for calling, especially as you get farther north. And I, I understand it, it's, it's a mindset. Danny in West Dallas. Danny, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hey, Jeff. How you doing? Real good. Okay, are you going to be moving to California anytime soon? No. <laughs> um, I have relatives who live out there. I go out to visit once in a while, and it's like, okay, nice place to live, don't want to live here. Or a nice place to visit, but don't want to live here. Yeah, I was struck by the I was struck by the prices too. I mean, I I, um, just, I mean, gasoline had to be at least a dollar. I want to say it was a dollar more a gallon than it was here. I'm thinking, my God, you got to have a lot of money to live out here too. That's only part of it. I mean, my gosh, the homeless people have to pay fifty bucks for a cardboard box. <laughs> then, then you've got the people that a lot of them share a common brain. Then, <laughs> well, see, then I'm not. Got, see, I'm just talking about. Now, see, th- thanks for the call, Danny. See, I'm, I'm not. I'm not going to bash the folks from California. I'm sure I've got lots of California transplants that are listening here. But I, I am, in all seriousness, you, you look at this. You, you look at these threat of fires. I mean, there are there are places that I just wouldn't live i mean I, I think it's great to live in a warm weather type of place but but these fires you look at this destruction and i guess yeah you can say that yeah you can have a tornado in the midwest but that that's different than these massive forest fires that occur you know on a relatively regular basis it would seem to me in any event our hearts and prayers go out to the people there i don't know when this thing is going to end because uh, again if you're talking about 50 mile an hour protracted winds they're going to be going on for several days there's only so much that you can do and you, you wonder, 
is this really going to menace L.A.? I mean, it, you know, what's going to start to happen now and how much damage is going to happen? 200,000 people already relocated. Think of that. 200,000 people. It's 137, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Just in time for the holidays, WTMJ.com is giving you a chance to win an authentic NFL game ball autographed by Packers head coach Mike McCarthy. Just log on to the WTMJ.com contest page, listen for the special keyword in the podcast player, fill out the entry form, and you could be our lucky winner. You can enter daily, but you've got to be 18 to take part. Official rules up at WTMJ.com. Um, we're, we're getting a couple people who are calling or sending texts. Um, why is WTM? Why is WTMJ cutting out so often? You'll be talking, then all of a sudden there's a gap with nothing that can be heard. Then your conversation continues when you come back. Um, we are doing, I am told, ma- routine maintenance on the transmitter. So I don't know how long it's going to last because I don't know anything about how you do routine maintenance on a radio transmitter. But apparently there's some ongoing work. So if you happen to experience something, it's it's just all part of us making sure that we continue to broadcast 24-7, 365 days a year. Okay, um, the Jerusalem has a very interesting place in, in world history. Um, there are those who would argue that Jerusalem may be the most conquered city in, in world history. It's been conquered at least 20 different times. Um and, and the way it stands right now is Jerusalem, which, of course, that the state of Israel views a, as its territory. And you have um, people who ultimately hope that on the other side, there's part of the Arab population, the Palestinians, who hope that um, ultimately, as part of any peace process, part of Jerusalem will be ceded to them. So it, it is very much in dispute right now the way it works is it's israeli territory but essentially east jerusalem um palestines palestinians arabs can live there but they can't become citizens and of course this is always jerusalem is is the hot button and in many respects it's the you know one of i I, look i don't know if you're gonna get peace in the middle east in my lifetime or in your lifetime but but jerusalem is always one of the the conflicted areas for years and years one president after another has made the decision that in an effort to try to avoid fanning the flames of the craziness that goes on in the Mideast, that the U.S. will waive, will, will delay recognizing Jerusalem. Now, the, the law essentially has, has, for the longest time, there's been a law in the books which has suggested that uh, Jerusalem should be recognized as the Israeli capital. But president after president after president have signed waivers delaying that recognition under the belief that it, it might advance the cause of peace. You know, that this this could be a bargaining chip, whatever. Um, president Trump brought that to an end the other day. He said, after more than two decades of waivers, we are no closer to a lasting peace agreement between Israel and the Palestines. It would be folly to assume that repeating the exact same formula will now produce a different or better result. Therefore, I have determined that it is time to officially recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, which is what Israelis ha- have thought all a- along. And so by doing this, President Trump starts the process 
and it's just a start because it's going to take several years, of moving the U.S. Embassy from Tel Aviv to, to Jerusalem. The response of that has been, again, very, very heated. Israelis love it. Israelis see Jerusalem as their eternal and undivided capital. Palestinians in views envision the eastern part of the city as the future capital of a Palestinian state. Um, Palestinians are saying that recognizing Jerusalem is a breach of international law and U.S. resolutions. And the, the crazies, the, the crazies are using this as a basis to, again, riot and cause protests. The Hamas leader, um, well, here's the way the USA Today reports it, the leader of the Palestinian Islamist group Hamas called Thursday for a new um, uprising against Israel after President Trump said the U.S. would recognize Jerusalem as Israel's capital and begin moving its embassy to the city. Um, the encouragement to revolt came as clashes between hundreds of Palestinian protesters and Israeli troops erupted across the West Bank on Thursday. Demonstrators in Gaza burned posters of President Trump and Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu as part of the three days of rage that started Wednesday who's producing the show. Okay, the Hamas leader calls for three days of rage. Why three? I mean, what, what, what's it, one day, two days, four days? Why three? Anyways, they've called for three days of rage. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Uh, President Trump, this was one of the things he campaigned on. And this was a campaign promise that he made that he's now fulfilled. You know, he, his point is, hey, you know, we've been delaying doing this for, you know, 20-plus years years under the guise that well you know we we can we we don't want to interfere with the mid-east peace process and this is a bargaining chip etc but we're no closer now than we were 20 years ago he promised that he was going to do this um was this an unnecessary by doing this does president trump unnecessarily risk making things worse or is this just recognition, a recognition that it's going to be difficult? And, you know, we've decided, I mean, Jerusalem, at least as far as the Israelis, who are our allies, Jerusalem, you know, they view this as, as their capital. Are we just recognizing reality? 414-799-1620. I understand that it is fashionable to bash President Trump, but the truth of the matter is... I view this as largely a symbolic start sort of move. But at the same time, I think he makes a very, very good point. I mean, this is, I don't think recognizing Jerusalem and moving the embassy to Jerusalem, I don't think that moves us further from the peace process. I think it demonstrates, if anything, that you have a president who recognizes that what we have done in the past isn't working and he is looking to shake things up, maybe as a way of getting stuff started. Similar to some of the tough talk that he's come out with about North Korea. We've tried to pacify North Korea for decades, and it's not getting us closer to getting them to seek a non-nuclear um, option. I think that with Trump, what Trump is doing, I, I think maybe in his own way, it's it's his way of trying to jumpstart new processes. Is Trump wrong to recognize Jerusalem? 414-799-1620. We discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. This is Big Story number 3. It's 144. This is Jeff Wagner. And then after that, my thoughts on Al Franken's departure from the U.S. Senate. Stick around. 
148, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ, with tax reform almost complete. What needs to happen before it heads to President Trump's desk for a signature? Wisconsin Congressman Glenn Grothman has the answer at 420 on Wisconsin's Afternoon News. Okay, President Trump is getting all sorts of criticism for recognizing what is a reality, and that is, as far as the Israelis are concerned, Jerusalem is the capital of Israel. So he's ordered the embassy moved from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. It's going to take a couple-year process. Um, this, by the way, has been accepted. It, it's being praised. It, it doesn't matter whether you've got conservatives or liberals. Um, as far as strengthening our ties with Israel, this has done that. number of world leaders are saying this is unnecessarily uh, provocative, um, even though the reality is that you know Jerusalem is the capital of Israel. This is, this is unnecessarily provocative. It gets in the way of the peace process. President Trump says, hey, we've been trying to work out a peace process for who, how long, and, and it, it's, it's just not working. Why maintain the fiction that Jerusalem is not the capital of Israel? 414-799-1620. Let's talk to, uh, let's see, we'll go to, first of all, to Ben in Whitewater. Ben, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hey, Jeff, how are you? I'm well, thank you. Okay, is this is this irrational by President Trump? Uh, you know, I really don't think so. Uh, the definition that, I told, uh, that I've been told that crazy is, is doing something over and over and over again and expecting a different result. Right. Um, I think maybe we need to do something different. It might not be the best idea, but it's something different. There's been violence in the Middle East in that area for, for centuries. Yep. Um, we need to try something different and just stop putting off and putting off and putting off. I think President uh, President Trump is right to try something different. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, you know, I, I mean, I like what you say about, you know, the definition of sanity, doing the same thing over and over again and being surprised that results aren't different. I mean, this, I mean, the reality is, as far as Israel is concerned, this, I mean, Jerusalem is their capital. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, if you had, I don't know, some state that was saying, hey, we're going to recognize the capital of the United States as being in, in you know, Tuscaloosa, Alabama or something. Well, that, that's a fiction. It, it is it is Washington, D.C. It is what it is. What do we gain by pretending it's not there? It just doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, as a nation, you know, they're accepting that this is their capital. Um, whether or not we recognize it, I, I feel it's kind of moot. They're they're the nation. They're the ones that make they're making the call that that this is our capital and we're recognizing it as our capital. Yeah, and, it, you know, I think that's the end. Of, that's the point at the end of the day. Right. No, I, I agree. Thank you. And I mean, the, the truth of the matter is, I'm. I mean, look, you have a you have a lot of people who are prone to violence that are out in that area. Anyways, if, if this is going, to, if it's not this that's going to incense them, it's going to be you know something else. I think this is, uh, again, something that has the potential maybe to change the dynamic. Now, does it arguably make it more difficult for President Trump to act as a neutral mediator between the parties? Maybe. Maybe. But look, we've tried that before, going back to Jimmy Carter and before, and it just it has not worked in the past, not least on a longstanding sort of basis. Evan in Milwaukee. Evan, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Thanks for taking the call. Yes, sir. Is it possible that this is a bargaining chip to begin uh, a new process here? Uh, give one side something they've been asking for for a long time and see now what's he going to ask Bibby for? Yes. In, in uh, you know, quid pro quo, what are we going to do for them now? You got something, what are we going to do for them? It seems like the peace process has always started with what do you guys want, PLO and Hamas and uh, Palestine? What do you want first? And it's never good enough. So. What about going the other way and finally recognizing something that Jerusalem 
or that Israel has wanted for decades. Yeah, and see, and Evan, I think you are actually on to something because here, here's the reality. The next time President, and again, this was, that's one of the reasons I just said that about, it's not just, this isn't just Netanyahu, this is the opposition. Everybody on both sides of the spectrum in Israel, all the politicians love this. This is something that everybody has agreed on. So you raise an interesting point. Okay, this is, this is a big give for the U.S. So let's say President Trump goes to Israel and says, all right, this is what I now need to you, to, from you. It's, it seems to me it's going to be tough for any politicians in Israel to say no after getting this. Exactly. And, and better to start with them who may be more open to acquiescing to something as opposed to the other side. Yeah. I mean, I, I, right. Thanks. For now, again, that's in if you want to go down that route, you have to assume that, you know, President Trump has a view of, of a long game. But, I mean, that that is certainly a theory that's out there. It's like, okay, this is a big give. All right, here, Israel, I'm giving you something that you have wanted for a long period of time and that, you know, for, for, former U.S. presidents have stalled you on. All right, this is it. Now, three months from now, I mean, I don't know what that thing would be. Three months from now, if he comes back and says, okay, this is now, I gave you what you wanted. This is now what I need from you. At least it gives him some credibility, maybe. Mark in Waukegan. Mark, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Yeah, hi, Jeff. Hey, I was just going to say, the way I'm viewing this one, like the earlier caller said, this is a different move. I'm going to give that one very clearly. But the only problem it seems to be is the United States has always been claiming that we are a neutral party in this, like a mediator type of thing. And all the reports that are coming out now, Israel's happy. They're loving it, you know, as a whole, because it's what they wanted. But all the other surrounding countries, uh, Jordan and others, right. they're all pretty upset about this because we're no longer acting neutral in this. We're clearly saying, hey, we're for Israel. And by the way, I'm not against Israel. Right, no, no, I understand. We're saying we're for Israel and to heck with all you other guys. Yeah, so and, that, and I'm looking at it. No, and I think, I mean, that's, that's why. I mean, thanks for calling. And that's certainly, that is one way of viewing this. There, there's, there's no question about it. Um, now, again, Big picture, long game. And let's face it, if you're talking about peace in the Middle East, you're always going to be talking about long game. Would be, is there now, now, and again, I know I just said it a minute ago, but I think it's true. I I think Israel, the next time Donald Trump goes and says, I want you to do something, I I need you to do this, I think Israel is going to be hard-pressed to say no. So if there is, if you want to jumpstart the peace process and you need some concession from Israel, and I, again, I don't know what that would be, um, and President Trump wanted to do it, he could say, hey, look, this is what I need. Remember, I gave you this. This is something that everybody had wanted. I put myself on the line. I did that. Fine. Now, that that's, again, giving President Trump credit. Some people might say, no, this is, again, he just you know one of these reactions. He made a campaign promise. He's following through on it. I just think that, that the reality is you have to figure out how you're going to jumpstart this process. All right, 155, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. When we come back, lots of stuff, including Al Franken, we hardly need, knew ye. Don't let the door hit you on the way out, 156. Stick around. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. All right, let's get started on this. 414-799-1620. Why did Al Franken resign? 
Here's what he says. Al Franken decides he's leaving. This is a portion of his statement. I am proud that during my time the Senate in the Senate, I have used my power to be a champion of women and that I have earned a reputation as someone who respects the women I work alongside every day. I know there's been a very different picture of me painted over the last few weeks, but I know who I really am. Serving in the United States Senate has been a great honor of my life. I know in my heart that nothing I have done as a senator, nothing has brought dishonor on this institution, and I am confident that the Ethics Committee Committee would agree. Nevertheless, today I'm announcing that in the coming weeks I will be resigning as a member of the United States Senate. Even today, on the worst political day of my life, I feel like it's been worth it. All right. So he disputes some of the allegations against him, says he hasn't brought dishonor on the Senate. Why did he quit? We're going to talk about it after the news. But why do you think he left? I've got a theory. 414-799-1620. It's 159. This is Jeff Wagner. It's 209. This is Jeff Wagner. WTMJ. Al Franken, we hardly knew ye. All right. Al Franken announces today that at some unspecified time in the near future, he will be resigning from the U.S. Senate. It is not. He did not go out in a particularly gracious fashion. Um, he indicated that he didn't think that any of his behavior while in the U.S. Senate had brought dishonor on the Senate. And I think what he's referring to is, with the exception of perhaps one incident, um, all the conduct and the complaints were things that happened back when he was an entertainer, when he was working for Air America or whatever. He said, nevertheless, I, I don't think I can represent the people of Minnesota. At the same time, I'm dealing with these ethics committee things. So even though um, I remember a number of instances differently or some things just flat out didn't happen, I am going to resign. He also then said, I know a lot of people are going to think it's ironic that I'm leaving when the Republicans are running a guy. And he was referring to Roy, uh, Roy Moore in Alabama. And you've got the president of the United States who has his own claims against him. So it's not a particularly gracious way to go out. And he clearly doesn't think, at least in my opinion, that he did anything wrong. So why do you think Al Franken decided to leave? What's going on here? 414-799-1620. Let's start with Steve in Green Bay. Steve, you're first. Good afternoon. Hey, Jeff. Thanks for taking my call. Yes, sir. I think you hit the nail on the head with what you just said as to why he's resigning. I think this was a political move with all the Democrats coming on board to force them and use them as a sacrificial lamb because now they can hold that up when they tell the folks when election times come, we're the party for women, and look how quickly we reacted to clean our, our ranks. Yep. What about the, you know Trump? What about Roy Moore? So I think that's really what was behind yeah, it. I, 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 I agree. I, I think if, the, if there, I think you're exactly right, Steve. If there was not this dynamic uh, of, of the Roy Moore race right now and all this Me Too type of stuff, I, I get, my guess is that all these, these people, particularly the female senators, the Tammy Baldwins of the world, instead of calling for him to leave, they would have been circling the wagons and they would be making exactly the same argument. Hey, you know, this is, he, he denies a lot of this. Um, it happened before he was in the U.S. Senate, but we're in a different time now. I think collectively they decided decided to throw him to the wolves so they could get that election issue next year. Well, I think also, I mean, I listened to that thing, and that, it, it was just so political. Not once did he admit fault or take, you right. know, take responsibility. He never apologized to anybody. 
it was purely a political maneuver. Right, and and you know, and you're you're right, and you're taking shots at Moore and Trump on the way out. No, thanks for calling. I mean, and, and here, let let us just be honest about this. Here's. Here is the way 2018 is going to play out, and and it is a problem. It's a problem for some Republicans in many respects, and I understand you might disagree with me about this. In many respects, if Roy Moore loses in Alabama on Tuesday, that would be a good thing to happen for the Republican Party. Here, Here is why. The Democrats are already gearing up to make 2018 to be kind of the year of of the woman. And if Roy Moore wins, and, and I look, and I, we've talked about the Roy Moore case before. I understand that there are some people who want to say innocent till proven guilty. I, I got a kind of nasty email from somebody who I don't know what happened 40 years ago between Roy Moore and one of the accusers who said she groped him. I, I don't know. He says it didn't happen. She says it did. It's 40 years ago. You're never going to be able to prove it one way or the other. You're, you're just you're just not. You can believe him. You can believe her. I just don't know. And I don't know how you'd ever prove something that was that long ago. But we do know about Roy Moore. And I upset a listener yesterday about this, but that's okay. I stand by what I said. We, we do know that when he was in his 30s as, as, a, as a district attorney, he had a thing for high school girls. He'd hang out at the malls and, you know, he'd, you know, approach them, try to date them, what, whatever. And my point was, that's weird, that's creepy. A 32-year-old, I don't care whether it's Alabama or Milwaukee, I'm sorry, a 32-year-old guy sniffing after 15- and 16-year-old girls is, is weird. And, and I don't know that that's, I'm not saying that he... That means I necessarily agree, except the story that he molested one or two. I just think that that's, that's a very weird thing. Then you couple that, and somebody texted me and said, well, my uncle was 32 and he married my aunt when he was 16. Are you saying he's a child molester? I'm not saying he's a child molester, but 32-year-old guys that date 16-year-old girls, yes, that's weird. I'm sorry. That's not a normal type of thing that, that happens. And that's not to say that the 50, I know that there's a lot of people who, you're 40, you meet somebody who's 25. Okay, that's different. That's different than 32 and 16. Sorry. In any event, I digress. But but what's going to happen here, and then, then Roy Moore has all sorts of other things as well, and I've, I've talked about that, the, the, this loose cannon, the guy, the fact that he's a judge and he refuses to follow the law, all those different types of things. But here's what's going to happen. If Roy Moore wins, if Roy Moore wins, I guarantee you all the money in my wallet versus all the money in Gru's wallet right now, um, I guarantee you that this is going to be the campaign issue. And you are going to have every Republican in the country, um, particularly ones who are running for Senate, but Congress as well, or for uh, the House as well, who are going to be lumped in, hey, you're the party of Roy Moore, and here's this guy who, you know, goes after the, the these children. If Al Franken was still in the Senate, and I said this the other day, that picture of Al Franklin back in 2003 where he's mugging for the camera, appearing to you know grab the breasts of that woman and then kind of mugging for the camera with the you-know-what-eating grin on his face, that would have been – that was the kryptonite to the charge of, you know, Republicans are soft on, on sexual harassment. Because then you say, well, okay, yeah, we've got Roy Moore, but look, this is your Al Franken. This is your liberal icon. I mean, there is no question in my mind that the Democrats made that calculation that the campaign issue – 
was more important than Al Franken, and he got thrown to the wolves. And I, I think you kind of see that in, in the way he's going out. It is not a particularly gracious sort of thing. But you know what? You know, it is a politically expedient sort of move because now the Democrats can say, all right, we had these allegations that surfaced against 88-year-old John Conyers. Now, forget the fact that people knew this was going on for two decades. But once it's now come out, he's gone. Al Franken, he's gone. And yet you've got the Republicans that are the party of this. This was political, political all the way. And my guess is if it was a slightly different climate or Roy Moore didn't have this issue going against him, my guess is the wagons would have been circled and Al Franken would probably be remaining in the U.S. Senate. It's going to be interesting to see how... How he reacts to being thrown to the wolves as time goes on, because that's that's what happened. I mean, what really drove this, I think, was the fact that you had so many of his colleagues that I think he undoubtedly thought were going to support him who came out and just ended up throwing him under the bus. Let's see. He got some texts. Uh, Al Franken, classless, not a fan. Turns out he's not as funny as he thought he was. He will not be missed. No, I don't think he will be missed. Um, let's see. Uh, here's Steve. RNC may have already crossed the Rubicon by supporting Moore. With Al falling on his sword, the Democrats claim the moral high ground. This all stinks. Yeah, I think there is um, something, you know, for this. Uh, let's see. Joy, Judge Moore was unfit for the U.S. Senate before these sexual misconduct charges were made. He was removed from the Alabama Supreme Court uh, twice. Um, well, that that's that's again. If Republicans look, here, here's that. That's why I said yesterday. If I was in Alabama, I wouldn't vote for either one of these clowns. I wouldn't vote for the Democrat, and I couldn't bring myself to vote for Roy Moore. I will tell you, big picture, this long game that I was talking about, long game. Roy Moore losing on Tuesday is not the worst thing. Number one, Roy Moore loses, and at least to an extent, that that gee, we're, we're going to support the, the sexual harasser or whatever, that claim goes away. Secondly, it is a lesson perhaps moving forward in 2018, and it's a lesson that the Republicans have forgotten. That is, you cannot nominate, you, you can't allow the party to be hijacked by these fringe candidates whether it was Sharon Angle in Nevada eight years ago, who was the only Republican in Nevada who couldn't beat Harry Reid, or whether it's Roy Moore in Alabama. I know you've got some of these folks like Steve Bannon who are running around trying to get this insurgency that's going, and we're going to shake up the Republican establishment. Well, if you're going to shake up the Republican establishment with some kook that likes to date 16-year-old girls when he's 33, you're going to be heading for an electoral debacle. I understand you want conservatives. We all want conservatives, but that doesn't mean you don't have that you have to embrace the fringe. And so maybe if Roy Moore loses, we can take that lesson moving forward and understand that yeah, it's important to have people who are conservative, but it's also important to have people who are not kooks. And you know, I think Roy Moore might fit into that category. It is 219 when we come back. All right. Just like in the city of Milwaukee, they are some people are outraged that you have contractors who might carry firearms into high-crime areas. Another city is outraged. Well, I'll tell you what they're outraged about. Stick around. 219, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 
223. Jeff Wagner. Time is running out to donate to our Kids to Kids Christmas campaign. We actually talked to Jim Kaczmarek from Capco in the 1 o'clock hour. The next stop, it is tomorrow. Albrecht Century in Delafield. Albrecht Century is in that big shopping center right off the freeway there. You can see it from the freeway. Um, Our big talking box, the mobile broadcast facility, will be there. Join me. Then the Wisconsin's Afternoon News crew, headed by Melissa Barkley and Sports Central, as we broadcast live. We're going to be there from noon until 6.30. We would love to see you and your children there with a new unwrapped toy. Help those who need it this holiday season with Kids to Kids Christmas from WTMJ, the Salvation Army, and Capco Metal Stamping. Okay, I was admittedly carrying on over the last couple of days all this this faux outrage in Milwaukee. Yeah, this picture of these three contractors who apparently had guns on their hips as they were working in a high crime area of the city. And then you had some of the bozo members of the Common Council who were upset, upset that white, and they're the ones that played the race card, upset that these white contractors or subcontractors would dare to bring guns into these areas. Well, of course, you know, we were taking calls for two days about people who work in the area saying, well, you know, when you look at all the people that are robbed, all the workers who are easy targets, who are going back and forth from work sites with, you know, thousands of dollars in tools, of course you're going to carry guns. But aldermen like Russell Stamper II and Ashanti Hamilton, instead of being concerned about the crime in the area, they were more concerned that, gee, these workers, these white workers would bring guns. Well, okay, maybe you should just take care of the house. I mean, figure out, okay, if you didn't have this crime problem in the first place, maybe they wouldn't feel like they needed to have guns. So now they're trying to figure out how to write an ordinance that will stand legal muster to prevent contractors from being able to work on city projects and at the same time carry guns. Um, When one or two of them who don't have guns are killed, you wonder if the aldermen are going to attend the funerals. But I digress. But that's what they're concerned about. We don't want the appearance of this happening. Okay, well, here's here's a related thing to that. Crew, have you ever been in one of those convenience stores where the the person behind the counter is is behind like glass? You know, and that's and look, if if I worked or owned a convenience store in certain parts of various communities, you betcha I'd want bulletproof glass between me and the patrons. All right, you betcha you would want something like that. It's just the reality to protect the workers. Well, I swear, I'm not making up this story. Here's the deal. Philadelphia is one step closer to getting rid of bulletproof glass in many of its small businesses. They are about ready to pass an ordinance which would regulate bullet-resistant barricades that stand between customers and cash registers in many neighborhood corner stores. This is what it would say. No establishment required to obtain obtain a large establishment license, in other words, a liquor license, shall erect or maintain a physical barrier that requires the person serving the item to either open a window or other aperture, that would be like the that would be like the little shelf that they push out, or to pass food through a window or other aperture in order to hand the food to the customer inside the establishment. Um, the argument being, and so they might say, well, why do you? Why would you limit the ability to do this? Well, first of all, they're concerned that it gives the city a bad image, that people feel the necess- necessity to hide behind bulletproof glass. That might make people think that this is dangerous. And then secondly, the other concern is that, well, 
Uh, it's a concern because if, if a customer should choke or have an allergic reaction, the barrier could stand in the way of safety. But let's face it, the real reason is they are afraid of what it looks like that you have a convenience store operator or employee who has to be behind bulletproof glass. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. Just like the city of Milwaukee being concerned with the image. Gee, we're afraid of how it's going to look that contractors want to carry guns onto job sites instead of recognizing it's so dangerous in your communities that the contractors need to carry guns. This strikes me as the same sort of thing. But let's tee this up. Should we stop convenience stores from essentially being able to put their employees behind bulletproof glass? 414-799-1620. I got to tell you, if I was a convenience store clerk in one of these high crime areas, first of all, I'm not sure you could pay me enough to do the job regardless, but I would damn sure want to be behind bulletproof glass, regardless of how that might look to the surrounding community. 414-799-1620. Do we ban bulletproof glass? My answer is no, no, a thousand times no. It's 228. This is Jeff Wagner. 236, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Okay, we have a winner. We have a winner of our $100 gift certificate. Keep listening. We will be giving away additional gift certificates as our holiday shopping list moves on. Today's date is one that lives in infamy. But on December 7, 1941, it was difficult for information to reach places like Milwaukee. How did the news finally spread? Gene and Jane discuss at 5.50 tomorrow. Tune in. They do a great job on Wisconsin's morning news. You know, one of the things I've been... It really is amazing how technology has changed the world. Um, World War II. You know, people... Nowadays, and look, look, being being overseas in a combat zone is a nightmare under any sort of circumstances. I mean, there's no argument about it. But in World War II... What happened is, you know, you would have people that would get drafted. They they would go away, and they they wouldn't see their families for, you know, in some cases years at a time. I mean, the 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 way you would communicate is you'd write letters, and those letters might show up, you know, a month later or two months later. Uh, nowadays, of course, with the different satellite hookups and all, it's it's still awful, but at least you can communicate. You know, during the Vietnam War, you at least had you know phone calls that people could make, and you could call and at least talk to your family back home but can you imagine what that would have been like in in 1941 or 1942 to you know you, you're drafted or you enlist you you're shipped overseas and then other than the occasional letter that may or may not find you you're really you're not having any sort of contact at all with your family and your loved ones i just man you want to talk about the greatest generation they earned that designation all right let's switch gears the we need to figure out ways to to fund things there's just no no question about it and you know typically it's been for like say schools you know it, it's been on the back of of the taxpayers you know let's let's have the taxpayers pay for this or that or the other thing well in many cases the taxpayers have kind of stood up and said okay enough is enough we're we're done with this. You know, we're, we, we don't want to pay anymore. So school districts have started looking for other ways to generate revenue. And, and that, that effort is, I think, getting some blowback. 
So this is what I want to discuss. There's a big story in uh, the one of the Madison papers about naming rights. And and I guess here's here's the question. Here's what it's let me just read you a portion of it. The two scoreboards in the Sauk Prairie High School varsity gym tell the basic story of the sporting events held there. Score of the game or match, how much time is left in a period or quarter, timeouts left, even the number of fouls. Across the top of the scoreboard, you get more of the story, as a local bank's name is visibly illuminated. Many years ago, local businesses such as the Bank of Prairie du Sac purchased one of the two scoreboards in the high school gym. The bank's name on the scoreboard um, reflects its contribution. In Milwaukee, uh, Milwaukee Public Schools, no area of the district's properties are off-limits for naming rights. More than 10 years ago, MPS began selling naming rights to everything from rooms and hallways to auditoriums or gym seats. The administration believed it would be easier to have a marketing agreement than to raise money through taxes. Um, in years past, the Sheboygan School District raised more than $1 million from banks and health care companies. Um, the New Berlin School District is uh, willing to consider most any business for general sponsorship arrangements as long as it didn't promote tobacco or alcohol. Then the story goes on to also talk about how sometimes private interests have come up. Hey, um, you need an auditorium. I will donate I'll donate $50,000 towards the auditorium as long as you consider uh, naming it after my father or naming it after, you know, my uncle or, or whatever. And these school districts more and more are saying, yes, this has become somewhat controversial because at least there's some folks out there who seem to think that this is, well, you are commercializing, you're commercializing this, this institution or... Um, you know, it, it's unfortunate. Can't we go, you know, it, you can't go to a, a game and not look up and see a sign that says Coca-Cola or Pepsi or, you know, w- whatever. Or that, gee, you know, um, your uncle was the former lieutenant governor. This is one of the examples I would give. Your w- uncle was the former lieutenant governor of the state of Wisconsin. I didn't like him that much. You mean this auditorium is going to be named after him simply because, you know, relatives ponied up $100,000? 414-799-1620. That is the Accurate Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I was actually reading the story and, and, and thinking about it. And I guess maybe it's because going back going back to when I was playing Little League Baseball in you know, second and third grade, our uniforms had sponsors on them. What's the movie, The Bad News Bears? Remember the original Bad News Bears? The, the kids, their, uh, the sponsor is like Chico's Bail Bonds or something like that. I think that's what it is. But, I mean, I can remember, you know, we had we had sponsors. We were sponsored by some local bakery or, or something. And, I mean, I, that was when, you know, I'm six and seven, eight years old, however old you are then. I, I remember that. And I guess it, it's never really bothered me that much. If I go to a play at the area high school and it's the, you know, Jeff Wagner Auditorium um, because – I've given a bunch of money or somebody else has given money on my behalf. I, I don't know. Is, is that going to bother people? Take my name out of it. Maybe that's a bad example. But you know what I mean. It's, you know, if you have a fill, uh, somebody who wants to make a generous donation and, and it ends up getting named after them. Or alternatively, if you've got the area bank, you know, let's say you've got the, you know, the first 
bank of Apple Jam Turnaround Wisconsin, and they decide, hey, you know, okay, the school needs an, a new scoreboard. We're going to contribute the money to it. Should they be allowed to do that? Is there something wrong with that? Would you rather have the taxpayers pay for it? And my answer would be no. I, I think I'm with MPS on this one. I'd sell anything that moves. Now, obviously, you probably want to have some standards, and I, I appreciate you don't want them if, if you're, it's alcohol and tobacco. I, I get it. But you know what? Beyond that, I think this is a great way to save taxpayer dollars and get what the schools need. And I don't mind going to a high school game and seeing that, okay, the scoreboard was paid for by Coca-Cola. Do you? 414-799-1620. We discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's 243. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 247, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Okay, our texters have a sense of humor. I can't wait to go to the Scott Walker Auditorium on the UW-Madison campus, yes. Uh, Let's see, Silk Auditorium. Silk, of course, is one of the area, I am told, a gentleman's club. Yes, they want to sponsor that. Now, look, and and at the same time, I understand that, especially when it comes to certain businesses, I mean, if I was a school district, I would would establish certain limitations. Again, you know, you don't want to be, hey, this is the, uh, I don't know, these... This is the gymnasium sponsored by Jack Daniels Bourbon Whiskey. Not that I have any problem with Jack Daniels Bourbon Whiskey, but I understand that, or or tobacco companies or gentlemen's clubs. But as a general rule, I mean, if the local bank or the local, I don't know, law firm or whatever, you know, wants to sponsor a scoreboard or something, I don't think that there's anything wrong with that. Peter in Fairwater. Peter, you're on WTMJ. Yeah, hey, Jeff. How are you? I'm good. Hey, Peter, let me just stop. I've been doing this job uh, full or part-time in this area for about 22 years. You are the first caller I have ever had Out from Fairwater, Fairwater yeah. which is a small community in the middle of Fond du Lac County, right? Yes, sir. I have it's been through 400 people or so. I have been through Fairwater. Community, corn community. <laughs> God, I have been through Fairwater, believe it or not. So I knew yeah, where you were calling from. You. Okay. Well, hey, I've got an opinion for your uh, okay. billboards in Milwaukee Public Schools. I'm all for it. I mean, put as many billboards as you can. There's a lot of kids. More billboards make more money. Uh, those schools need to be fixed up some way, somehow. Yeah. So that's my opinion on that. But, hey, before you hang up on me, I got one other question. Yeah? Um, did we catch those guys that did the drive-by on, when was that, Sunday morning? Uh, not, I'm not, I, I got to go back, I, I got to go back and think about, there's, there's so many shootings. I'm sorry, I just don't know off the top of my head. I've got uh, as to who who's been caught and who's been charged. I'm not saying yes or no. Got to go back and check that. Fairwater, Fairwater, Wisconsin. Yeah, I've been through there. See, yeah, this is this is the key. We get so worked up over different things, and and I understand that you know we're all concerned about commercialization and things like that. But but you know what? I mean, this is a way that you can bring in non-traditional sort of revenue. Uh, let's see. Jeff, I live in Walworth County and have three kids in school. It's great to have property taxes going down, but the schools are going to get money one way or the other. We've seen the private sector sponsor pools and athletic infrastructure. I have no problem with it. That's uh, Chris. Yes, yeah, I agree with her. I mean, this is the bottom line. You've got to figure out, uh, again, ways to try to bring in money. And I think this is an outstanding way to do it, again, within certain limitations. And and you're starting to see it more and more. 
uh, not just the businesses, but again, as a beneficiary sort of thing. And let's face it, colleges have been doing this for years. I mean, you've got how many college campuses do you go to and you've got, okay, this is such and such hall or this is such and such, you know, dorm or whatever. It's named after people. And in general, the reason it's named after these people is the fact that they probably come up and they ponied up a, a whole bunch of money. And and there's nothing, at least in my opinion, there's nothing wrong with that. And I, matter of fact, I, I think if you would have some people who were smart when it came to marketing, you could figure out a way to really kind of exploit this. And I mean exploit in a, in a good way. You could sit there and, I mean, like here, here's what I would do if I was a principal or something like that, and I had a, a new... I had a new gym that was going up or whatever, and it was going to be a great auditorium, and I was looking for ways to offset the costs or maybe help underwrite the cost of new uniforms for the teams or things like that. I mean, I I try to see if, if there were marketing opportunities that were there. I'd kind of say, okay, I've got uh, we've got four banks in, you know, whatever, Apple Jam Turnaround. We've got four different banks, and I've got an offer from, you know, Bank One to uh, provide – to, to pay me $5,000 for the naming rights for the scoreboard, I don't think that I would go see that there'd be anything wrong with saying, all right, I mean, I'm not trying to get into a bidding war necessarily, but, gee, you know, Bank One is going to be, and I, I'm just using that as a Bank One, Bank Two, Bank Three, not the Bank One thing. All right, this one first bank wants to pay $5,000 for the scoreboard. Gee, you know, do you want to be part of this uh, as well? Or Bank One, first bank, if you want to be, you know, if you want to have exclusive naming rights, is there an extra money that you're willing to put up? Bill in Glendale. Bill, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Bill. Um, I told your screener that I'm one of the people who paid to have, well, in my case, my parents' name on a on a school auditorium in uh-huh. my hometown. Uh, I wanted to, um, obviously, I did it because I wanted, my parents were important people in the community for a long time. Right. I wanted them remembered. Um, I'm, I'm not the first one who did that in that high school. Right. And, um, yeah. They were, and my guess is the high school was glad to have your money. <laughs> yeah, once they got us up to the level they wanted, they actually <laughs> had a, a schedule. Uh-huh. Um, I would say there's three examples with that high school. One was one of the wealthiest families in town, and the person, all family names, uh, he, he paid for a massive expansion of the gymnasium mm-hmm. um the son of the longtime sportscaster as a memorial to his father who who announced all the football games for many years it, uh, the press box is named after his father and of course i told you my situation yeah it's well take take mine specifically we ended the money went towards new curtains which they hadn't been able to afford for over a decade and um, some sound improvements and and the, yeah. the 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 key to it is that when a school district is faced between a choice for books or computers for their pupils or curtains for their auditorium, what wins? Yeah. That's obvious, right? And what should win? And, you know, again, the books and exactly. the computers. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. The, and the point being, okay, they could. You really have only three choices. You don't get the new curtains, which is what they did for a decade. You tax people who who can't afford it, frankly. There's not a lot of wealth in that community. Or somebody steps up who does have wealth, you know, 
I'm not rich. No, but you want to do something nice. No, I think no, – I'm sorry, i got to let you go, Bill, because I'm kind of up against the clock. But, yeah, I agree entirely. I mean, it's – to me, this is just – anybody whining about this, well, okay, you know, get a life. All right. We're going to figure out what Melissa Barkley has on her mind in just a couple minutes. Stick around. It is 2.54. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ.